This fine podcast is sponsored by FutureNet. FutureNet is a networking-focused, invitation-only event being held during VMworld this August 2017. You'll hear from industry leaders and expert practitioners about new and emerging technologies that will transform the network. Request your invitation at vmware.com slash futurenet. Infrastructure as a service. It's a bit like wanting to make a pizza. So you borrow someone's pizza oven and tools and you bring your own dough and toppings, though, because those are delicious and they can taste super awesome. I mean, unless you have a food replicator like we do on the Data Knots Intergalactic Cruiser, which is awesome as well. Wait, what, what are we talking about again? I'm rambling. Oh, yeah, IS. In this episode, join us on our epic journey through the world of Microsoft Azure as we learn what, how, and where to run your bountiful bites of binary babbling. <laughs> Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters, and with me is my co-host who makes a thick, rich hummus out of his prized collection of dropped packets. He's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on the Twitters, and this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. Do you have some of that hummus with you today, Ethan? Can I sample? You cannot, and, uh, and I'm not even giving out the recipe. I'm just keeping it all for myself. That's the way that works. Okay. Well, let's move away from it. You're, you're not interesting, Ethan. Let's move to someone who is interesting. <laughs> okay. And that's Janelle Crothers. Welcome to the show. Who are you? And let's let's talk some Azure. Hi. Thank you for having me. I, I'm Janelle. I'm a technical evangelist over here at Microsoft. I've been in Microsoft a little over four years now. And I guess I'm totally a sucker for dystopian novels. But one of the things that I really enjoy about working at Microsoft is getting to play with Azure. So I'm really excited to get to talk about that today. Awesome. And I've, I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time because you tend to tweet informative bits of information and good links and things like that. So I, I try, personally endorse following you on Twitter. It's JKC137. It's a worthy follow. Stamp thank of you. approval. So <laughs> pivoting a bit, um, let's start at the intro of Azure. And first off, is, I hear Azure, I hear Azure, I hear different pronunciations. What, what's the, where does that come from? What, what's the right one? I use Azure. Azure seems to be the predominant pronunciation, but I think depending where you are in the country, you tend to, you know, add a little flair to it. So if we say Azure for the duration of the show, it's okay. We're totally cool. Grammar police won't give me. Okay. So Azure, let's talk about the history of Azure. You know, why did Microsoft decide to say, let's get in that public cloud business and, and a little bit of the story behind it? Well, a little bit of the history for me, I, I mean, I can't talk to exactly why we decided to go into it, besides it being sort of the place to be. But for those of us, particularly on the infrastructure side, who looked at Azure when it first kind of came out, it was about five years ago, we were kind of getting into that platform as a service space right at the time of you know AWS getting into infrastructure as a service. And we kind of took it to a different route. And it's really interesting because now we're sort of coming into where kind of platform as a service is a really big play. But infrastructure as a service is where it was at first because most of us who come from managing data centers of all sizes just wanted servers to run stuff on. So for those of us who looked at it way back when, I kind of looked at it and went, what does this do? I'm not a developer. And I kind of ignored it for a while. And then I started looking at it when they brought in infrastructure as a service. That was more my speed. I could run a VM. I could recreate some of the things that I was doing on-prem. I could sort of treat it like a server. So that was kind of the cool part. But we had service manager. And that wasn't as flexible as um, Azure Resource Manager model is now. So we've matured a lot. It's, it's come a long way. Yeah, and I've noticed... 
I mean, I'm obviously from the outside looking in, but it, it seemed like there was a robust application catalog that was built up. You know, Office 365 gets tons of play in the market from a mind share and a, and a tech speak kind of thing. I hear a lot of folks trying to either extend their Active Directory environment using Azure AD or potentially build one from scratch in there for test dev or even prod. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's also you could carve up resources. So it's kind of like it's like a choose your own adventure novel, hopefully not a dystopian novel <laughs> in yeah, the no. public cloud. It, it totally is. I mean, obviously, we were providing services like you know, Office 365 and email and Xbox and stuff like that on infrastructure that we were building in data centers. So, you know, much like what AWS did was like, hey, let's just open this up for other people to use. You know, that made sense for us as well. But being able to sort of connect all of those things and, and to bring your own. Before I worked at Microsoft, I worked for relatively, you know, small, small size businesses that ran, you know, in-house data centers. And some of the challenges that were really difficult to overcome in a, in a small business with a small data center, things like disaster recovery testing, scalability, being having, having things outside of your internal network when there's downtime in the office buildings and things like that, were really challenging to overcome before these cloud solutions were available. And now a lot of those solutions are just a couple clicks away. Janelle, talk about how Azure is structured from from an architectural perspective. So, like you mentioned, oh, I wanted to do IaaS stuff initially because uh, that I, I could like pick up a workload and I could move it on servers that I was familiar with, and that was something we understood. And when we've talked about public cloud and how the architecture works here on data knots before, but a lot of that terminology seems to come from. Amazon Web Services and what they do. So terms like availability zones and regions and those kind of things. So give us the, the high level of Azure architecture. Okay, so we, are, we have regions. We have, right now we have got about 34, and I think we've got about six more on the way. I didn't look this week, and sometimes it feels like it changes overnight. <laughs> but we have these generally available regions. We have some government-specific regions. We also have things like China and Germany, and they operate separately due to their local regulations. So within those regions, there's like a variable number of data centers. So when you select West US, for example, for a storage location, you often can then select a redundancy level within that. So, you know, whether it's globally across the US or locally to just the West region or even zone, which is basically a data center, you know, sort of each set of stuff. So And then each one of those regions has our services spread across it. You'll find that like a newer service might only appear in a couple regions initially as they roll them out. One of the advantages of being a West US is we tend to get a lot of the the newer features tend to roll into West US first and then kind of go across and then... Represent, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then features would roll out to the government clouds, usually a little bit slower and stuff like that. So regions is kind of our area of demarcation. It's how you can kind of guarantee where your data and your compute comes from. And we don't really have that same, like, I think AWS has like the VCP or something like that, where you can do like the virtual data center. We don't really have that construct. Our um, billing construct is actually more around like your subscription and stuff like that. Now, do you guys spread that network out into like big uh, colo facilities and so on? So that if I want to get my stuff really close to the Azure cloud, I can do that? The closest way is using like express route. So you can do some co-locations facilities have basically private fiber connections and stuff like that. So you can do like MPLS and um, pay for more of those private connections to get closer. Azure's generally in its own data center. So you can't just be like, I'm going to go with the same people that Azure's at and then be there. And then how do you guys handle uh, authentication, which seems to be one of the huge issues in any of these application architectures? Can I 
this being a Microsoft cloud, is there some kind of a tie into my own local Active Directory? There's a couple ways you can kind of go about doing that. You can, you know, we have like, everything's now tied into like Azure Active Directory. So as a person who just gets a subscription, the subscriptions historically are tied to your Microsoft account, like your MSA, your Hotmail, like your Live ID, depending on how how dated uh, yes. you want to be. That I have sort six of, thing. of those. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> still exactly. rocking the Hotmail since like yeah, 1999. Hey, was, <laughs> yeah. So am I. So you know. So the subscription is tied to that, and that's kind of where your billing construct is. But you can also do things like tie in your own organization with Office 365 and sort of bring your own domain as well. Identity is a complicated thing. So if you think about like the history of how we tied all that in, it's it could be neater than it is. But once you get the hang of it, it works. But you have you're basically tied to your subscription that's tied to an MSA. I got a question then around the SaaS offerings. We've already mentioned Office 365, and that it sounds like you kind of built those offerings out in the data center and then said, oh, let's also offer some of the cloud environments for IaaS. So is that the case? Are you kind of drinking your own champagne? I like that that use of the term better than the other one oh, uh, when it comes to, <laughs> yeah, we'll not use the other one. I'm not a huge fan. I like the champagne, you know, because it's, it's awesome. Uh, it's so awesome. Are, are you running your own stuff in Azure? I mean, if I'm in Azure, do I automatically have access to these, these resources and these SaaS offerings? Depending on the stuff that you tie into your subscription, yes. So like you can log in with you know your MSA account, and you can tie in Azure, you can tie in Office 365, you can sort of tie in all of these things under this one big you know billing subscription essentially. So you do have access to basically everything. It's just a matter of what kind of you know program you want to tie on. Like for Office 365, you've got agreements for that, so you can't just like log into Azure and then be like, oh, I can get to my Office 365. You do have to kind of connect <laughs> them. It's not like one big you know, thing. And then there's some features in Azure that, you know, you have to turn on, particularly if they're in preview and stuff like that. You have to be like, I want to actually play with this and turn those things on. I was just thinking the architectural benefits, you know, the closer the app is to the offering or the data, you know, yeah. I'm not paying for bandwidth and all that kind of jazz. Yeah, so just... it doesn't really work quite that way. Like our bandwidth is basically just, uh, you know, putting stuff in is basically free, taking stuff out, you basically pay for. You don't really, like, there's no, like, real benefit to being like, oh, I'm an Office 6365 user and I'm going to get a better networking deal on Azure. You're not really. It's, just, it's four rows down. It's right. Yeah, it doesn't really yeah, matter. Yeah, it's, it. yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's not. It's just not. doesn't quite work that way. Oh, okay. Let's talk more about infrastructure as a service then. The, those specific components of Azure. There's a lot to break down and understand. So starting at the top, what sort of infrastructure am I able to build upon? Do I have a you know a hypervisor layer that's there and there's can I put a hypervisor up there? Is it all bare metal? I mean kinda kinda break it down for me. Right. Right now, like our point that you go into as a customer is the hypervisor layer. So you can build VMs, you can build, you know, networks on top of that and all of those kind of accoutrements that go with supporting virtual machines, but you can't get lower than the hypervisor. You can't bring your own right now. But the the the, the future is vast and for me, I always look at the features that exist in server 2016 and figure out that eventually we're going to either make those sort of things available through Azure or, you know, they already are. So nested virtualization will be coming and things like that. So we're going to start seeing a little bit more of that, particularly when it comes to using containers, because that's essentially a form of kind of nesting virtualization and how you're going to be able to do that. We're definitely going to see a lot more being able to, a lot more flexibility that way. But right now you build a VM and that's what you see. Oh, containers on Windows is a show all by itself. Yeah. And we, we need to have that conversation one of these days. Yeah. Sure. We, won't even, we won't even go there today right now, but like kind of that, where all those layers of abstraction sort of go. But for right now, just for the sake of this conversation, 
we're looking at, you know, stick a VM in Azure. What do you want to do with that VM? And that's the, that's at the hypervisor layer. Okay. So when I'm trying to control that infrastructure where I've just put that VM, what are the controls that I have to control like network, storage, compute, services? Is it all, how do I manipulate that stuff? Okay. So when you build a VM, I have to say the portal's gotten so much better now because when you build a VM, as you're going through that VM, you can start to customize all of those sort of things uh, where before you had to kind of have those things all ready to go first. Like you had to have the network and the storage and all that sort of stuff set before you built the VM if you really wanted to have some control over it. But now as you like start up a VM, you could be like, okay, what network do I want to put it on? Do I want to put it on an existing one? Or do I want to create a new virtual network? So once you create that new virtual network, it's going to function just like a VLAN in your own physical network. All of the machines on that VLAN are going to be able to automatically you know, connect and communicate with each other. You can build multiple VLANs with same or different IP address spaces, and they're going to be completely separate, even if they're all in your same billing subscription. The VNet kind of controls the control on that. So you build your VNet, you decide where your storage is going to go. You're going to pick your region as the primary sort of thing that encompasses all of that. Like you can't build a network in the east region and then take a VM that's in west region and connect it to that. Right. Common sense operational stuff. Right. You have some constraints there. Yeah. Yeah. But, Albert Einstein is still – he still has the final say in a lot of these, yeah, these laws. Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just it, – that's kind of the, always the interesting thing about the cloud is it's like it's the cloud and it's the cloud. And it's like, no, actually somewhere there's some metal and some physics right. like, still actually apply. Like there, there's gasp. I know. There's bare metal under there somewhere whether we get to touch it. Now, Janelle, you were you're relating all of those things that you could set. And I'm kind of imagining like a, a clicky-clicky interface with pull-downs and stuff like that. Is that what we're talking about so far? Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the portal, you know, okay. you can go through and clicky clicky, all of that, all of that sort of stuff. You can, you know, you can basically rack and stack right in the cloud. Okay. So, so then two qualifiers here. Uh, one of Chris's favorite topics is PowerShell. So is there a PowerShell component where I could do some of this management? And then what about REST or REST API? I mean, it's, it's all REST basically on the back end, you know, anyway, going, kind of going through the portal, but you can do, you've got a couple different ways. You can, you know, clicky clicky through the portal. You can pull up PowerShell and connect to Azure with PowerShell and do all of this, most of it, uh, command line. You can use the Azure CLI. So you've got that for cross-platform if you're coming from the Linux side and you don't want to deal with PowerShell, although you can run PowerShell on Linux. That's that's a whole other conversation as well. You can do that. You can do the templates, which I'm a big fan of the templates. Build it once in the portal and figure it out how you want and then copy that into a template and tweak it and then you're good to go. So you can really, you've got a bunch of different ways. Janelle, what about other services on top of the IaaS platform? You know, Ethan was teasing apart the virtual machines and, and kind of those kind of services. What about network services, load balancing, that kind of jazz? You know, what, what do I have the availability to instantiate and control? You can, with the ARM now, which was crazy compared to the, the service manager from before, you can basically build the exact, almost the exact network that you want. Like you can recreate pretty much what you have on-prem. So within those virtual networks, you can add load balancers to the front to control internal and external access to certain machines. We have these network security groups where essentially little mini firewalls on Azure that you can then control access to certain VMs or groups of VMs internally and externally, even in between certain machines. So you can put a group of machines on a network that you've subnetted out and then isolate them further with these security groups and stuff like that. So you have a lot of control. You can even connect multiple virtual networks. So say you created two virtual networks in your account and you wanted them to connect like they were on the same network, you can peer in between them and things like that. There's a lot of flexibility. 
We were talking about the architecture of Azure, and, uh, and Janelle made the point that, yeah, a lot of public clouds, they're all kind of the same now, similar with uh, with what that layout is. So you make intelligent choices about where you put your workloads and what zones they're in and where they're available and, and so on. And it kind of seems like a lot of what you've gotten from AWS, if you're used to that Amazon Web Services model for consuming public cloud and how you set up your operations and your architecture around that is available to you now in a lot of other places, including Azure. So that was... Uh, Good to have some familiarity, some point of commonality as you're shopping public clouds to know that that, uh, that feature set is there. What, uh, what grabbed your attention, Chris? I thought it was interesting to think about how Azure will change as the platform stabilizes or migrates or whatever you want to say about on server 2016, um, the offering of containers and, and really just the, the server platform itself has so many new features and APIs and whatnot that it'll be interesting. I actually recorded an episode with Scott Lowe on another podcast on this channel called The Full Stack Journey. And we talked about how interested I am in the future to work with Azure for my multi-cloud lab architecture to replace kind of my home lab. And this just encourages me even further to go deeper into that in the future. Let's take a break to talk about this unique networking conference sponsoring our show today, FutureNet. On August 30th and 31st, 2017, at the tail end of VMworld in Las Vegas, VMware is hosting an invitation-only mini-conference on networking called FutureNet. We Pack Pushers attended this last year, and we learned from listening to people who are pushing the boundaries of possible, you know, the kind of things you can really do with a network, and the speakers who showed up there – These are not the kind of people you see speaking publicly about what they do all that often. So we were exposed to a lot of different ideas about networking that were thought-provoking and interesting and maybe even able to change our skeptical minds. So if you're interested in this, remember, again, FutureNet is invitation only, but there are still some invitations left to go out. So let's say you're a senior enterprise networking or cloud architect, you're a principal engineer, you're a CTO, you're a master practitioner of cloud technology, you've got some kind of a senior role in networking or cloud architecture. You're the sort of a person that FutureNet might want to have on board. So, and if you're not sure, I mean, go ahead, submit yourself anyway, and maybe you match and get an invitation. Now, you do need to cover your own travel and hotel to the event, and this is in Las Vegas, which can be super cheap if you hit it right, but the FutureNet conference itself is free if you qualify. And again, this is one of the best conference-style events we packet pushers have ever attended. So again, if you're a senior influencer in your organization, then you should definitely request an invitation at vmware.com slash FutureNet. One more time, that is vmware.com slash FutureNet. Janelle, at the end of the, the the previous bit, we were talking about how to uh, manipulate the infrastructure using automation and so on. But but you can do more kinds of automation. There's automation of, of workflows and, uh, and orchestration of processes and so on that you can do a lot with within Azure, as I understand it. Can you talk about some of this? Oh, yeah. It's... <laughs> I wish we could define automation because automation means a bunch of different things to different people, depending on what you want to automate and what you're doing for your business or doing in your data center. If you type in Azure automation, you're going to get a very sort of specific thing. You're going to get a specific topic talking about applying PowerShell and desired state configuration to those VMs in Azure. Very much the level of operational management on those VMs, keeping them consistent, making sure their services are running the way that you want, that things are installed properly. And you can build all sorts of PowerShell workflows to go ahead and sort of do that work for you through Azure Automation. But then you also have automation in the sense of, you know, infrastructure as a service in general, being able to 
templatize out the building of that infrastructure. Because when we're dealing with the data center, there's kind of a couple process sections. There's the rack and stack part. Like I'm going to plug in these things and connect these network cables and doing that part of your infrastructure. And then there's the what actually runs on the servers and how do I keep that consistent part of data centers. There's different parts you can automate. So the Azure automation kind of handles the operational management of the server once it exists, but then you can use ARM templates and ARM templates and a lot of infrastructure as a service to actually build those servers and those networks for you first. So, okay. So a point of clarification here, I think that's something that's really important for automation just more broadly is automation from a vendor perspective is very often tooling or the ability to do something uh, or to make something, but it isn't the thing. So you need to automate based on your workflow and your processes and your specific templates or whatever it is. You got to build a thing, put a, a work and a time investment in upfront to leverage those tools so that in the future, building is easier. Is that a fair way to categorize it? Yeah, that is a fair way to categorize it. Like a lot of times I sit down, it's like, I don't necessarily know what I want to build or I don't know how to automate it until I've kind of gone through it manually once. You know, there's a lot of like, how do I do this? What What's my end goal? And then what step? am I going to have to automate to, to get there? So there's, you know, there's, I guess there's more than one way to skin a cat. And then when it comes to how much of your infrastructure automation is managed by a development team, or especially when you start looking at moving stuff into the cloud, some of that operational setup could be moved more to developers or sort of put into that process. And then how to, what kind of tools and what kind of, you know, ways of automating do you use to make sure that happens for them? So it's kind of crazy. It's all sort of like overlapping and all very DevOps and stuff like that now. <laughs> well, let's dive into the the one item that you brought up a number of different times, ARM, which is the Azure Resource Manager. I want to dig into that because, I mean, it's kind of the new hotness. And it's like one of them. New, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the new hotness, and it seems pretty critical for IaaS. You know, can you explain what it is and why it's so important to the Azure ecosystem? I've mentioned before we had Azure, it's kind of like Azure V1 versus Azure V2. So Azure V1 was based off of, it was called Service Manager, and it was based off the original, our original offering, which was primarily platform as a service. And then when we realized people wanted VMs, we're like, well, just shove the VMs in the kind of cloud service construct that we built oh. to make it, you know, make it easy for developers to kind of get applications in there. I, I don't want to say that developers don't understand networking, but Sometimes there's a sometimes that's a lot true. Ethan has um, his own opinions of that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was being nice, just being quiet, letting Janelle be nice too. I know. I'm just I'm saying I'm like I'm not I'm not saying all developers. I'm just saying sometimes there's challenges there. So at any rate, we had this cloud service model. But when you started putting VMs in there, it just wasn't really very flexible. You you were sort of trapped into this networking model that we kind of gave to you automatically and stuff like that. So with Azure V2, the Azure Resource Manager version, and that's where you get ARM templates, we basically took all the pieces parts separately. So instead of sort of getting a VM that came with one network and, you know, one network interface and stuff like that, you can now like plug in as many little pieces, parts as you want and control that. So it makes it harder to deploy properly because you need to know about all these pieces, parts, but it gives you a lot of flexibility to build exactly what you want. And the crux around this is this templatized JSON template terminology that you use to build these templates. You can get them right out of the portal. Like you can build something clicky clicky in the portal and then at the end be like, give me the template and it'll give you the template. And then you could actually take that and, you know, tweak it and massage it to make that repeatable. Because one of the key things about making your data center 
consistent and um, easy to rebuild is the repeatability and being able to capture those templates and use them really helps with that. Plus, then you don't have to go into the portal. I mean, I like <laughs> I like the portal, but after a couple times of kind of doing the same thing, you're just sort of like, how can I, you know, not have to ever do this again? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Being in the portal is like the training wheels. I feel like you know, if you're if you're consistently going in there, I don't think you're you're clouding properly. Right, you, right. You get a, pet, you know, a little flag on the cloud, you know. <laughs> like you've been here too usage. long. Yeah, it's just like you, you've done this three times already. I think you need a template. Like, <laughs> you know, Fair it's just like, like taking that. So, you know, yeah, it's just like I always want, you know, I like I want to network a certain way or I want this number of VMs or whatever. And I can just kind of do that into do that in a template now. And then you can deploy that via PowerShell or via Azure CLI, which is something that you could then kick off using some other automation tool that you might already have in your infrastructure. Got it. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like infrastructure is code because we're taking an application or a set of applications or really the infrastructure and defining it in a declarative manner using, you know, in this case, the vehicle's JSON. Right. So that sounds cool. Therefore, yeah. I, I mean, I kind of had a question here, like, yeah. do I have to use it or, or should I use it? It feels like should the answer to should use it is like, duh. Yeah. Do I have to use it, though? And the answer is, it seems like maybe not initially I can onboard through the oh, portal. Yeah, you could totally onboard. Like if you were like, I want to set up a VM, you could totally go through the portal, get a VM, then you could log into that VM via RDP and then kick off installing whatever you want. Or you can go ahead and do things like have that ARM template, call a PowerShell script that calls DSC and does things like, like download software automatically and install it for you. And it'll come back and tell you, you know, this machine's been set up. It now has this configuration based on a PowerShell script that you add on. It might be use the portal just to, to understand the, the basics. Because I know when I started working with Azure, I was in the portal because I want to understand what are the buttons, the features, just what is this thing? Yeah. And then after I got a little more comfortable with the constructs to building the virtual machine, then I was like, what is this ARM thing I see everywhere? And I dug into that a little bit more. I'm like, oh, in my mind, it was like an Azure-specific version of Terraform almost, you know, where I'm thinking literally this config and, and building with it. So that was my path to using it. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how my brain works. Yeah, I mean, I, you, if you go to like ARM templates and you download one and look at it, they're like huge. You're like, what is this 900 lines yes. of whatever? And what does this do? <laughs> and then how do you figure out what you're supposed to change? So for me, it's like, what do I want to build? Can I build it in Azure? And can I build it manually? And then like, if I want to change this, where is that in the template? You know, if I want two of these, what do I duplicate in the template? You know, I mean, I started learning about authoring templates, like the storage account is like one thing that you can build one resource in a template and it'll just build a storage account and stop. Whereas a VM, you also have to have the dependencies for the network and the storage and all that stuff. So like a VM template, even though you'd think should be simple, actually has a lot of layers to it. So breaking them down, I always start with storage because storage stands alone. <laughs> now, okay, we've been talking about automation, but then you have a product in the Azure catalog that's that's called automation. You know, that's a service. So how is that distinct from what we've been talking about? So, yeah, that's the, the Azure automation. That's the one that does like the management of the servers sort of once they exist. So like beyond the ARM template. So now you've used an ARM template to create a bunch of server 2016 servers on a network. And if you didn't put anything in them or maybe you, you know, had some software installed, what's going to go ahead and make sure that they stay consistent? What's going to have them do other tasks that you would potentially PowerShell? Oh. You can build an automation account that will then connect to those servers and do those tasks for you. Well, it, it sounds maybe like a, a tool like, uh, like Chef or Ansible where you're trying to get the infrastructure and the services running on them to reflect a certain state. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do state management with that. DSC, desired state configuration, obviously is kind of crucial for that. So the the automation will, you know, kick off DSC. And now, like, you don't even need to have a separate DSC server. Like, there's a service within Azure that'll just be the DSC server for you and manage your machines and stuff. So, Okay, so how do I consume Azure automation then? I, I get the idea of it, but what what is it that I'm using or interfacing with? Oh, that there's there's a portal. <laughs> there's part of the portal for that, Yay. and then you can author like <laughs> you can author scripts right in the portal. Um, you can even author scripts that'll pull from like GitHub and stuff like that. Like really simple. Like for me, I didn't want to run down on my subscription. And this is prior, like we actually have features that do this for you now automatically. But one of the first things that I did in automation was I had an automation account that went in and shut down all my VMs after 10 o'clock at night. I'd yes, be working that's a great after. idea. And then so this automation account would just run in the background and we'd go into the VMs that I specified or would just look for all of them and be like, is it on? I'm going to turn it off. You know, and then I could have one that turned them on in the morning if I wanted. So like to do like those maintenance sort of tasks, you can have Azure Automation sort of, you know, do that for you. And I'm going to guess PowerShell shows up again? Yep. Yep. You can use PowerShell. There's a couple other languages you can, I think, use for automation too. But PowerShell is the key one for that because you're kind of doing that on the back end. Automate the, the machines. I've got Ethan properly trained. He just loves PowerShell now. Just like everything. It's like, can we do that with PowerShell? Yes. Well, you know, you know this is a little aside, but PowerShell keeps coming up so often. There's so many things you can do with it. And now it's been ported to multiple platforms. It's kind of like, okay, I really got to spend a little bit of time here and get into it. I've been more of a Python guy along the way. So, well, so you, can, you can use the Azure CLI for that. That's Python-based. Excellent. And the only thing that, uh, in addition to that, that I wanted to bring up was as I was kind of doing some research for the show and, you know, just trying to see what you could do with Azure Automation and really just Azure in general, there was a great architecture document that I'm going to put in the show notes. Uh, it has all of the REST and API kind of design doc details that you may want for building within Azure. It's, the, it's in the best practices part of the architecture documentation. Yeah. I mean, a hat tip to Microsoft, this thing was really verbose. But easy to read. Typically, the API documentation that I deal with is like, yes, here's a 400-page PDF with sample payloads. It's all in XML, and you just want to you know, stab your eyes. This thing was pretty good. So I recommend if, if you're just curious and you're not in there yet, I, I, I had the link in there. It was pretty good. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we've, I, I, we're, we're getting much better with our documentation. We're working really hard on that. And uh, But, I mean, there's really, like, you could sit there and read documentation all day, but sometimes you just need to get in there and just kind of poke it with a stick a little bit and see what it does. Janelle had a good reminder about multiple right ways to do things in the cloud or, or really just IT. You know, like with math problems, there's always one right answer and I could never seem to figure it out. But in the world of IT, there's so many right answers and they all have varying degrees of success. There's like rightness levels and there's just as many wrong answers that make you face pop. So try to lean towards the right side of things. But there's no one right way to do things in IT, which I kind of like. Ethan, what about you? Oh, the point she made that we've made on the show before, which is if you've done a certain task a, a bunch of times and you have a way to automate it to make it go faster, you need to put the time in and automate that task, whatever it is. As uh, she said at one point there, the portal is like... Well, maybe you said it, Chris. Training wheels, you know, the clicky-clicky interface, and you're going through all these screens and wizards to try to get stuff done. Come on. Once you've been through it a few times, then use the tool set that's available to you to get it automated. And Azure's made a whole bunch of tools available to you so that you can do exactly that. There's a time investment, but once you've made that investment, the payoff is massive. All 
All right, we know a lot more about what Azure is, especially from an IaaS perspective. And I really love nerding out about the automation with ARM and Azure Automation specifically. Let's kind of pivot a little bit to working with Azure. The obvious statement here is nobody has a greenfield anymore, or hardly anybody, unless you're some startup that just kicked off your new company. So I assume we're going to need to migrate some workloads to Azure or kind of lift and shift, build new. There's all sorts of different ways to do it. Janelle, I'm interested in your experiences and what they've taught you about getting apps into the public cloud, either net new or migration or kind of tickling that apart. I was just talking to a colleague, I think yesterday, and it used to be just like, you know, your choices were software as a service or platform as a service or infrastructure as a service. But now so much of that is a little kind of blended, like, you know, it's like, it's like well, this is infrastructure as a service, but sort of platformy. And you know, so when it comes to looking at what you've got on-prem and deciding how you're going to move that to the cloud, there's a lot of decisions, there's a lot of options, there's a lot of different ways to sort of architect Lift and shift, I feel like is a great way. It's a great way to learn. One of the first ways that I kind of got into Azure and learning was just be like, what do I know on-prem? And let me build that in the cloud exactly the way I have it on-prem because I know what success looks like. Uh, so I think you sort of have to start with that. Lift and shift is also you know, great from a DR standpoint. We've got a lot of tools automatically in there now that allow you to back up and restore your on-prem stuff directly to the cloud. And that's essentially, you know, that's lifting and shifting. It's great. It gets the job done. It's not necessarily the most cost effective. So as you start moving things to the cloud, you have to decide, are there other abstractions and features that I want to be able to take advantage to reduce or change costs or give me additional flexibility? So you do have to look at like re-architecting some of those applications. And that's where you start going down the rat hole of, you know, containers and microservices and serverless and, you know, databases as a service and stuff like that. Janelle, I mean, I think there's another qualifier here too, which is a lot of shops are going multi-cloud because they like certain functions or workloads to end up in one public cloud and certain functions or workloads maybe to end up in a different one. We're talking about Azure with you here. If you were talking to an enterprise and trying to help them decide what workloads are most appropriate for Azure, what would you say? Compared to like other public clouds, you know, at this point, I think, you know, we're looking at it's kind of the same, same across. It's really, it's really about, you know, what you need is a what you need was a business case. You know, are there certain regions, certain areas of the world that you need data to be? And that's how you break sort of stuff up. But when it comes to looking at like, what's the best workload, you want to start looking um, from a cost effective standpoint, you want to look at workloads that you can kind of break break up into pieces that you can scale sort of sort of separately. I'm pretty sure we all kind of know the days where you'd buy a server and you'd you know, pick this much, you know, RAM and this much storage space. And inevitably, we always had the servers that, you know, this one's got not enough RAM and too much storage. And this one over here has has the opposite problem. And, you know, how can I sort of shove that together to better utilize my resources? Being able to break that sort of stuff up allows us to kind of take advantage of the cloud in that way and scale what we need. You know, my front end web servers, you know, need to scale up, but my back end, you know, databases don't. And kind of breaking those pieces up, but just Picking up, say, a domain controller and putting it in the cloud, well, great for learning, probably yeah. isn't very cost effective because running a VM 24-7 can be expensive and the workload that a domain controller does is relatively low. But I, I wanted to highlight that for a moment because I think that's a golden piece of, uh, of advice you know, in that you, you mentioned you know what success looks like with a domain controller or something simple like that. You know what it should look like at the end of the story. And therefore, it's a good use case to practice 
with ARM or automation, things like at the end of the workflow, what should I have? And that shouldn't be a mystery. So I kind of like the advice of start with something simple, like a domain controller. Don't necessarily tie that to prod, you know, like make right, it a right, thing. Right, exactly. But, you but know. do that because it's a known quantity and the only unknown is the automation part of it, the migration right. part or of that, that so. Or the Azure part of it. Like I, I did domain controllers because I did a lot of, you know, AD management in, you know, in my data center, you know, roles and stuff like that. Um, if I could have built Exchange servers, I would have built those, but we didn't support Exchange servers on, on infrastructure as a service um, in Azure at the time. Um, but you know, some people are like, "Oh, I know, you know, I know um, IIS, and I'll build a web server." It's just kind of like I can't build a web server on IIS to save my soul, so I wouldn't know whether I screwed that up in Azure or just screwed it up. So, so I went with a lot of, <laughs> yeah, you know. You know. <laughs> but for but domain controllers, I knew what those looked like, you know, so I built them all the time. Okay, so, so so speaking of domain control, maybe we can move on to an, an interesting example here because you kind of made the point. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to build a Windows VM and run run a DC and then put it up in Azure because there's other options here for that. I mean, I can run a DC kind of as a service in Azure. Is that right? Yeah, you totally can. I mean, think about best practice for running domain controllers. Not only is it one domain controller, it's really two. So now you're running like two VMs that kind of do barely any work in the cloud. And, you know, that's pricey. So, but when you're lifting and shifting stuff and you're still making those on-prem connections and you still have that domain, you know, construct, you might put a service in the cloud that needs a domain controller, needs to authenticate for whatever reason. So do you run a domain controller in the cloud just to service this other function? You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So now we have the ability to turn on um, Azure, you know, domain services where you turn on this service and you tell it what domain it is serving for and it acts as a domain controller for you. You sync it back to your on-prem domain controller and all that sort of stuff. But then it provides the domain authentication that a domain controller would provide, but as a service for you instead of running a VM. So as an architect, I'm often looking at what is available to me. What are the new tools in my tool belt? Because uh, we, we don't uh, want to get stale. Yes. No, you don't want to get yeah. stale. And, and I understand that there's always going to be new things going on. But what are some clues that help me understand, you know, okay, I have these applications such as AD domain services that is now offered in Azure. So instead of plopping a VM running a, a domain controller, I can just extend using the service. You know, what, what are some clues or, or some places that I can kind of track to say, oh, now this particular service is offered and I don't need to necessarily build out my own stack within Azure to offer right. that for my, my own internal customers? I wish I had one good answer. Oh. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's horrible. We do have a roadmap. We do publish a roadmap. So you can look at the Azure roadmap, and that kind of gives you some idea of what we're working on, what's kind of coming down the pike. You know, we have our Azure blogs, which post a lot of sort of stuff. Honestly, though, I feel like sometimes if I just miss an email, like – I don't know what's going on and because we're looking at, you know, Azure changes. We push stuff out to Azure every six or eight weeks or so. So you kind of, it's, it's a free for all. Um. Oh, I can, I can hardly keep up with the blog. The Azure blog is insane with new features that are being, being, being it's, it's constant. You know, and that I, that speaks to sort of one of the other whole challenges, you know, regardless of what cloud you're using, you know, they're all sort of doing doing this with this, you know, quick release cycle and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, how do I know? It's just like, well, come back in a couple of weeks and the problem you have might have been solved. Like, it's just, it's really, really challenging to keep up. I feel like gone are the days where you could, you know, you 
bought a product from a vendor and you installed it in your data center and you sort of became an expert on that product because you only updated it every couple of years and you could be, you know, an exchange expert or, a Azure, an, act, or an active directory expert or you name it, you could be that expert because it didn't change that often. And now I constantly feel like, well, I could have been an expert yesterday. I'm not so sure about today. Well, that's really affecting the way applications can be built now. So, so this is really an interesting question. I mean, do you do you see value in building that traditional method of building an application going forward, or does it make more sense that we're going to be using some mix of things, infrastructure as a service here, and maybe some VMs in a different place, and but containers and microservices for this other thing, and we're going to use a lot more serverless, and so depending on a, a million different factors, our apps could look like one of a lot of different configurations. Yeah, there's really no one answer now for, you know, that whole like, you know, three-tier application. Like everybody sort of does it this way. You start taking each of those tiers and sort of further breaking them down depending on what they do. Now it's not like the front-end web tier. It's like now you've got like, you know, the shopping cart process or the authentication process. And these are all things that you can break out separately and scale and orchestrate differently. So you really have to look at what is your business need? What is your tolerance for failure for this or for that? What's in interconnected and how do you scale them? We are really good at building monolithic applications. We've done it for you know decades. You shouldn't take an application that you're running on-prem and feel like you have to pick it apart and make it serverless or make it a microservice infrastructure right away. You really can look at that and, you know, pull out small parts or re-architect as you go along because what's working for you is working for you. And you can, you can lift and shift that. Great. You know, you're going to find out down the line that, you know, maybe you can do it better. Maybe you can do it cheaper. Maybe you can scale it differently, but you, you truly do have to start with what you know and kind of go from there. No, destroy it all. Go completely microservice day right. one. Yeah. Just, <laughs> that's the best way. <laughs> it's the best way. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, right. You wouldn't want to do it that way, of, of course, you know, just kind of, you know, torpedoes, you know, then off you go. But, 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 it, but it does come down to there's real business value and there may be significant cost benefits or performance or redundancy. And, and you just got all these additional options and features and characteristics of the app to, uh, to consider now. When, when before, like, right, we'd buy a thing and put it in our data center and we all kind of controlled it, knew what was going on, and it didn't change all that often. Now it's just it's, – it's, it's not exactly the wild, wild west, but it kind of is with uh, so many different choices and things to think about as you make those decisions. And you get all these positives, like the ability to scale or something like that. You're like, oh, I want the ability to scale. Well, great. I have an endless supply of compute available to me if I put it in the cloud. But then you're also – you know, unfortunately, at the mercy of, you know, that provider for, you know, uptime or whatever. And it doesn't matter, you know, whose cloud you're in, everybody's going to have downtime at some point. The same for running it in your data center. It's just like, what do you do best? And what does your organization do best? And focus on doing that best and let somebody else do something that they do best. So for me, running small data centers, you could argue up and down all day that it's in my data center and I can control it. But from a security standpoint, I'm pretty sure that some of the cloud vendors are going to, you know, we're doing security probably way better than I do in my data center. I used to prop doors open with fans whenever it got hot. Like, <laughs> secure. Yeah, no one else has ever done that. No that is a total ever, yeah, unique just, situation. Yeah, that was totally me. I'm my eyes are shifting around the room, scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, find yeah. Out that I've done that. <laughs> you know, so for people to be like, well, I'm keeping it on-prem because it's more secure in my own data center. Like, really? Really? You're doing it better? Like, 
think about mm-hmm. that. You know, so there's you know, there's trade-offs though. It's like, yeah, you get the scalability, but when it's down, you're down. You can't go into the data center and be like, quick, let's reboot it. Like, there's no good answer. What so, if I want to kick the tires with Azure? You know, do I do I have to supply an upfront cost? Can I just trial it? Can I play yes, with it? You can totally tinker? trial it. We have okay. a, a $200 for 30 days free trial. That's pretty standard. It does ask you for your credit card. I'll put that up there. You have to put it in there, but it won't charge you until you basically go and throw a ticky. You have to throw a slider that says, please charge me. Oh, okay. It doesn't just be like, oh, you've run out of your free year and then I'll charge you because you left something <laughs> running. Like it doesn't do that. Um, you run out of the $200, it just shuts everything down and then you have to be like, please charge me so I can run this. So you can do that. You get that $200 bid. And then after that, it is pay as you go. That's kind of how it works. When I run out of the $200, I just make a shh. I make an email address up for my cat and I start over. All right, Janelle, I feel I feel very azured. I'm very I'm very cloudy feeling today. Okay. I'm looking forward to definitely making a cat email and uh, signing up for another trial here. But wanted Go to thank again. you. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to thank you for coming on the show. And if folks want to get a hold of you on the web or blog or whatnot. Where can they find you on the internet's? Well, you mentioned my Twitter and JKC137 on Twitter. I also my blog is techmoney.com, and I should blog more, but uh, haven't recently. But there's some good stuff up there. It's usually where I write all my notes, so I don't forget them. So if you want to see some of the stuff I've done, you can find my blog. And you know, I've got the got the usual things, but Twitter. My blog, pretty much the primary ones. Excellent. Yeah, it's a common thing. We all we all wish we could blog more, but but that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow at Chris Wall on the Twitters or my blog, wallnetwork.com. And my delightful friend Ethan, he's at ECBanks on the Twitters, or his blog is EthanCBanks.com. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You're gonna find the data nuts talking about containers, conferences, certifications, cloud, engineering, you name it. We got it. Until then. May your server lights blink, your clouds be sunny, and your cables be cleanly managed. Ready for number two? Yes, uh, section two, more specifically, yes. Can't wait till I start working with a professional podcaster someday. (laughs) 